0: Hi, welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Jessica Rowley and you're here listening to some of the conversations that myself and my co-host Dr. Emma Kennedy and Emily Crosby have had with guests from across the world about consultation in psychology. Myself and Emily are trainee educational psychologists at the Tavistock & Portman NHS Trust and Dr Emma Kennedy is deputy course director and teaches the consultation module on the Doctorate in Educational Psychology course. The three of us have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions in consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to the episodes, and if you want any more information or are interested in being a guest with us, please feel free to get in touch. Hi, welcome to this episode of Conversations About Consultation. Today, we are speaking with Professor Aaron Fisher, who is a licensed psychologist and board certified behavior analyst. He's also Dean and Al Professor of School Psychology and Adjunct Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Utah. He is also director of the Huntsman Mental Health Institute Home Programme, Interdisciplinary Paediatric Feeding Disorders Clinic there too. He has worked with children and young people with social, emotional and mental health difficulties and their families for over 15 years now, and his research interests lie primarily at the intersection of technology, behaviour and mental health, particularly in telehealth and teleconsultation and offering support in this way in psychology. Sadly, and super ironically, we had many technical issues throughout this episode. And so there is a section where the sound will cut out and pause. Um, The conversation following that does not flow on, so apologies for this, but we really don't think that it's taken away from the richness of this conversation with Aaron. Um, We were really honored to discuss this topic with him, and we hope you also enjoy the conversation.
1: So thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us. We really appreciate you coming on to talk to us more about your research and experience.
2: Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on today.
1: Oh, it's so
0: great that you're here, Aaron, and I'm really excited for our conversation today. I think it's going to be great. Um, I guess it would be really nice just to start with whether you could tell us a bit about yourself and your journey to becoming a school psychologist, how that's been for you.
2: Absolutely. So I got my start working with individuals um, with autism spectrum disorder when I was like 17 years old, and um, I was working on a summer camp um, that included children with disabilities in their curriculum and so that really piqued my interest in being able to, to do more human service supports and helping children. Um, I went to undergraduate studies at the University of Miami, which is in um, Southern Florida. And while I was there, I was really able to get involved more with the autism community and learn about behavior analysis and psychology and think about what I could do, particularly as an interventionist. And what I found is I really had a passion for helping parents um, and helping educators. And although I really appreciated the direct service work, um, I saw the impact of being able to help others who then help our clients. And so I went to graduate school at Louisiana State University. And while I was there, I had the privilege of working with some great folks in consultation and really learned um, about the value of the work on like a really practical level. Um, And then of course, with any doctorate, you learn a lot about the field and you really dig in. And something that I experienced was there was lack of access to a lot of these services, particularly when you leave metropolitan areas. And um, when I was in Louisiana, which has a, a really vast um, rural um, areas of the state outside of Baton Rouge and, and New Orleans. What we found was, you would drive to these um, small towns, and people would forget you would be showing up to help them with things because there's so many competing interests, right? There's so many things going on at schools. And as a trainee, I tried to, you know, have radical compassion and say these people are really busy and. And then I also reminded myself that there was this new technology um, that we could use. And I was always interested in technology. I was always interested in in kind of optimizing our work as psychologists, um, particularly as school psychologists. And I found if I didn't have to drive 45 minutes to have a teacher forget to meet with me, that would be really great. Um, I could just do that in my living room and uh, maybe be more productive. And so that that was really what put me on my path um, to try to infuse technology into consultative services. Um, it was kind of a practical piece that I wanted to say for myself, but then after starting to do it, I realized there was a lot of value here. And, you know, my journey really culminated with um, this idea that we could have pretty effective services in a face-to-face format over technology, like, like we're all doing right now. And that was really powerful for me. Um, so that that's sort of a little bit about my journey. Um, I'm excited always looking back to see how I got to this place. Um, and then I think being in Utah, which is a, a largely uh, rural and remote state, there's a lot of opportunity um, to really dig in and do some of this work um, with communities that really need the support who are, you know, hours away from the specialist and in, in like the big city.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, um, Aaron, um, because I know you mentioned there about behaviour analysts. Stuff. Me and Jess have both had experience in that kind of area with that direct intervention um, work. And I think we both found that we really enjoyed working with the people who are working with the clients and trying to work with them to support them. And I think that's ultimately what you know consultation helps us to do. But there are obviously some differences um, internationally with where we are and where you guys are in terms of kind of educational psychologists and school psychologists um, and what they kind of do. Um, So I, I guess we were just wondering about your kind of research interests and really interested in how the kind of you approach those research practice gaps and where there can be real struggles about applying research findings and consultation to school and community practice. So I was just wondering if there was... Any kind of barriers that you've experienced in the US. Because I know it's something that we really have experienced here in the UK. And we don't often get that much time to do um, that research in that area.
2: That's a great question. You know, I think um, something I learned early on was if you if you lead with service, if you try to help people in these communities as the primary goal, there's a lot of opportunity to then use that information. And the data you collected to to publish and to do research with or or create um, doors that can open to to do research later and that's been really helpful because i think um even as a graduate student i I kind of uh, trying to be a scientist practitioner i think i maybe leaned more towards the the scientist than trying to always lead with research and i think that can be helpful of course but i think that um, it's a really privileged position to be in to just focus just on research and i think the service work is so informing of, of the work we're doing and so all of my research is, is very applied. It's let's let's go and help people first. Let's identify real problems that exist in these spaces. And then let's consider what we can use as far as data and uh, and to inform other people of, of this work. And I think that's been a really successful model um, because it's allowed us to really build partnerships and relationships with various districts um, across the state of Utah. And so I, I think that's that's been really helpful. Um, and, and I'm, I'm really grateful that we've had that opportunity because I think even looking at some of my colleagues who, who are maybe more focused on submitting grants and doing more of a research focused agenda, they're missing the, the human connection, they're missing the, the real work where you can, you know, get the, the warm fuzzies of educators saying, wow, this was, this was incredibly Um, transformative. And, um, and I actually was thinking, maybe, could I present that with you at a conference? And then we get really excited because the teachers want to present or the school administrator. So I think it's just, you know, flipping our traditional perspective about what could, Mm -hmm. what could inform research.
3: It's also a much more collaborative position, that point about, you know, we could present this together, is sort of recognizing and honoring the expertise of the teacher or whomever is working in the community and saying, actually, you're just as much a key part of this rather than, well, I'll come and show you how it's done, which I think we'd, we'd recognize as a bit of a bit of a gap there. And I think for for Jess and for M's cohorts and for the year groups before and after them, I think there's an increasing sense of, yes, we have a sense of that scientist practitioner role. We've got a sense of there is great research out there and it's very well uh, done in terms of research methodologies. And it's, you know, um, you know those kind of standards around sort of evidence uh, in a very science type way but I guess the challenge that they bring back to us on the course is this is very difficult to apply in a real world context where you can't control the number of different variables perhaps that were controlled in a a research in a very well-designed research study and I guess we've been thinking you know, increasingly about implementation science and about some of the value maybe that can come from that. And I guess one of the things that we were wondering about is your thoughts on on whatever it is that we might learn about consultation through research. Do we also need to do a piece of work in relation to how one might be able to implement that in a real world, very messy, quite
2: uncontrolled sort of context? Absolutely.
3: Journal of schools education psychological consultation in 2018 so it's obviously way before the rest of us started to get interested but at least us getting interested in it here you've obviously been doing this work for ages um, so it would be really good just to hear a little bit from you about why, I know you've started to talk a little bit about what led you into that area in the first place, but as you started to research it, were there particular things that you became really interested in, or, yeah, just your general kind of sense of when you first started the research in teleconsultation.
2: Yeah, thank you for that question. It really, it all kind of dated back to 2012. Um, like I had mentioned earlier, um, more out of frustration of, of what do I do without being able to access people. Um, and then after we did our initial study, which was really just comparing that first interview from like a problem solving consultation framework, the problem identification interview, we uh, worked with um, 60 teachers and um, we simulated the first session. So it was talk about a student who's, who you either have in your class or remember having in your class. And we're, I'm gonna go through this interview with you. And we did it with each teacher um, in person and then face-to-face through technology and we compared those things and so we had some really good initial outcomes Um, we used the consultation analysis record as a tool to evaluate the the verbal interactions that occurred and we found some really positive outcomes it was um, an effective way to gather information Um, we found that it was more concise Um, and so there were some real strengths to being able to to do this model and so once we had that initial kind of uh, inclination this might work, we really hopped in. And uh, after 2012 till probably about 20, um, 18 or so, we really, really tried to conduct as much research in this area and we would do it where um, we had collaborators in different states who had grad students and we would switch So, working with teachers who were in a different state and, and vice versa, and really started to just answer all these questions about acceptability about feasibility about what are some of the parameters we could do. Um, how does this look for students who are receiving special education services. Um, one of the big things that popped up for us was kids move around the classroom. And we, we learned about this really early on. And anyone who's actually in a school knows these things. You can't just have people in a static place. So we also started to introduce telepresence robots. And this was a really cool feature that allowed us to not only look around environments, but then also drive around environments. So we could be in a space and we could really be dynamic in a way that we couldn't if we were just an iPad leaning up, you know, against a book on the wall. And so once we were able to really address some of the major barriers that existed particularly around presence within a space we, we really felt that this had some utility and this could be replicated across multiple sites and so um, since then kind of one of my proudest moments is uh, some of our local districts have, have just bought in and they have their own fleet of telepresence robots that they put in each of their special education classrooms and are able to be in one location and, and pop in all these different classrooms supporting students and educators And that for me made it really salient. Like this is, it's not just me selfishly being interested in telepresence robots, but people see the value. And these are people who are doing the work on the day-to-day. So it was a really fun journey. Um, Before the pandemic, I sort of gave up on the idea that this would happen anytime soon, that people would actually use um, teleconsultation. It just, it was, it seemed aspirational for a lot of people because they weren't actually doing it. And then the pandemic hit and, I really ate my, my words for thinking that this would be the end of telehealth and teleconsultation and, and the interest just really improved and increased. And it was just amazing to see so many people having to use this, this technology now. And so yeah. I was, it was so serendipitous, but I was so grateful that we had studied this work for eight years prior right. to the pandemic and we yeah. could sort of hit the ground running. Yeah. And um, it's been pretty validating. It's, it's been weird juxtaposition of, of the interest in it on top of everything else that's going on right now but i'm just i'm just glad that we had this research out there for people so that they could you know pick up the pace and and, and really be effective
3: yeah yeah it's i mean there's just, uh, so much in what you've just said uh, one thing that really struck me is the use of language face to face through technology because i think the language of you know it's remote consultation for example that can be a phrase that people use very often it, there there is yeah it feels an important nuance that one is still face to face via a platform like this for example um and not getting too much wedded to the idea that of distance because you are still trying to make connections and, and be in person in some sort of way with with another person i guess was one thing but the other thing i was really it's just with the robots how did the children react or respond to robots in their classrooms or yeah it would be really interesting to hear a little bit about how how the children themselves interacted with them
2: yes absolutely well that's that's been a fun part of figuring out all of this um as you can imagine when you put a robot that moves around to an environment in in a classroom or a school setting people people start to raise eyebrows it's it's definitely different than the the day-to-day and so you know we've had some really fun experiences where we're driving through the hallway and we're like swarmed by students and and i'm remote but i'm starting to feel like my personal space my virtual personal space is being taken over and i'm also getting scared because i have no arms on this robot so i can't like keep, keep people at bay um so there's this you know there's a lot of excitement a lot of teaching so you know the the paraprofessional would run over and say oh give, give the robot some space y'all um so i, I appreciated the interest that students had um, I think teachers were, were definitely vocally apprehensive. The, the initial response is, this is weird. And, I, and I'm and i like, yeah, this is very weird. And then I always ask, and, and let's experience it a little bit and then let me know what you think. And then always coming back, they go, I thought this was weird in the beginning, but I really like it. I like how you can just be there. And when you're done, you drive back into the charger and I don't have to talk to you or put it back or do anything like that. Um, and there's this, the seamlessness of it, I think really helped. Um, for students, we also saw some reactivity. If you put like a new device, um, particularly a tablet in a classroom, they've associated tablet means games, tablet means something fun. And so initially, they would go up and touch it a lot and try to interact. Um, we would do the guided access mode, which is a setting you can put in, in, in a tablet or an iPad. And essentially, it locks you into whatever application you're on. So they would push buttons and try to interact with it, but it didn't give them high fives. It didn't give them any you know, rewards or candy or, or any like special privileges. They couldn't play games on it. So the value just goes away. And so we have about like a two week habituation period where we just put the technology out in these spaces and let people interact with them and let them feel uncomfortable, let them feel um, a little bit off put by it, but to experience it and, and get that exposure, because, you know, at least with some of our early um, teleconsultation research, we found that people thought the work is acceptable, but once they experienced it, their acceptability increased. And that was really important to me, because I think, you know, there's people who are reluctant to technology. And I always see it as a skill deficit. Let's just keep training and get people comfortable with it, get them fluent and proficient, and and the the buy-in really increased. And and I think that we saw that um, not only with students, um, but, but the educators we worked with as well.
3: Okay, so are we right in thinking then that you had both? Teleconsultation, in a sense of where we are now, like using an online video conferencing program where you were able to kind of do, like you mentioned, the problem identification stage of a consultation with a teacher or a school professional. And you also had this opportunity to actually get into a classroom and see what it was like in the learning environment for a particular child or group of children that you had both.
2: Exactly. We have both, and, and I think that's an important piece. With this um, static face-to-face, like setting up a desktop computer and iPad, those are really effective conversations when you're working directly with the parent. When you're working directly with an educator, um, you know they're not moving around. Hopefully, right? They're just like sitting in their space, and so that that part I think makes it really accessible. I think it's when we move into the dynamic things that happen within a classroom, and you're trying to do um, performance feedback, or you're trying to observe a. a paraprofessional or someone working with the student, that's when you need to have that dynamic flexibility. And so we learned that we always will send a telepresence robot to augment the the static device that we may have. Um, And we may not use it all the time, but we have that option. And it's a lot easier than when when the need comes up and you're like, I have to send you this device, it'll be there at the end of the week, we may have missed some of the really important information we could have gathered.
3: It's a huge amount of data to gather, because uh, the richness of just even doing a classroom observation, but, you know, the idea that you could actually record many more aspects of, of interaction that have been going on or, or different spaces with different people, that's never something necessarily that we're able to do, particularly for, say, secondary aged pupils who will have a number of different teachers. They may be in different interventions. They may be meeting with different people. Um, You this. Scale of data that you potentially can gather can be really quite quite a loss
2: it, it can be it can be a lot of data and i think that's been something we tried to balance um as we've gotten started with this uh, we know that there's privacy issues we know there's security issues with data in general and so we we tend to not record our sessions it's it's live observation and it's it's done that way so that we can have no permanent product of of the observation however there are times when we're coaching folks, or we need to provide more asynchronous um, performance feedback, then we will go through the, the appropriate consent process to make sure that Um, the individual's family consents to it, um, that the educators who are on screen, everyone is aware that this is happening and that we're safely securing those in a HIPAA, FERPA compliant. Um, Those are like the the US um, privacy standards. Um, And and I think that's been really helpful, particularly when uh, we don't have all the students in the classroom because sometimes it's hard to get everyone to consent. But if we're working one-on-one with a student, maybe doing a specific program, then we can record and send that. And then our team, maybe they have another meeting at that same time Typically they wouldn't have been able to view that information and, and gather all that rich data like, like you were talking about. But now at the end of the night, when maybe they have some extra time, they can sit down and look at that video, provide asynchronous performance feedback. So I, I think, and this is kind of the untapped area for me in, in teleconsultation, is this idea of asynchronous tele- teleconsultation. So much of it is, is still face to face. Some of the research that we want to dive into is how asynchronous can we go and still have effectiveness? So do I need to Um, Have live observations? Do I need to have live meetings with a teacher maybe after the first one? Or can I go on Flipgrid, which is um, an educational application, and record an asynchronous video that the teacher then watches? And then the teacher records the response, and we sort of have this asynchronous dialogue. Um, You know, the jury's out. I don't know yet, but those are some areas that I think could be really fruitful um, as long as we have data security.
0: I think that's really interesting hearing, like, I don't know, for me, very new. things. (laughs) things. <laughs> um, and I imagine possibly every educational psychologist in the UK, this generally would be quite new information. I at least haven't heard of anything like this in the UK. Um, it's making me think a little bit, even just throughout COVID and having to switch to online Form of service delivery for consultation there's I guess been a little bit of resistance to doing that I know lots of EPS. I've heard you know can't wait to get back into schools can't wait to like be face-to-face um in person with yeah consultees or with children or and young people um and I guess some of me was just thinking then when we when you were talking about how much of it needs to actually be face-to-face or in the moment or building the relationship. Um, Yeah, not asynchronously, I guess. And I was thinking about whether you've kind of thought much or explored much about how different the skills need to be or the psychological knowledge or the kind of like underpinning theory that you need to have. Yeah, whether that might be different when you're delivering consultation, for example, online um, as we would, or even when you're talking about having that robotics element as well in the classroom, um, yeah, whether you need different skills or, or knowledge to do those things—that's—it's
2: a really interesting question. I, you know, I think that it, you know you probably do need to differentiate your skills in some way. Um, for me, rapport—the relationship that you're developing with your consultees—is the that's the number one thing of all of this. To the extent that they like you, they they trust you, they believe that you're trying to collaborate. And so I wonder, and I think these are great empirical questions, but when we move to a more asynchronous model, when we're we're doing less in-person type work, um, or even face-to-face through through, um, video conferencing, how much harder do we have to work to build rapport? What are those little pieces that we'll have to put in? Do we have to rely now on more frequent text messaging. Hey, just thinking about how things are going with this student that you're working with today. Um, check in with me if you need anything, right? Or hope that the first day of intervention is going well. I'm always here if you need help, right? Like some of these messages that we might have to send. So it's just being, what I found I think with technology and you all may have seen this too this past year is we have to be so much more intentional the more we are online. And so I think as long as we're aware of that when it comes to rapport building I think we can maintain these things. But I think if we we just imagine, oh, we'll just, go business as usual, and not be more intentional with the report pieces, I think there's a higher propensity to fall off through telehealth, because there's less, you know, I can't pass by your classroom and be like, hey, how's it going? It's good to see you. Uh, that 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 has to be a purposeful moment.
3: I, it's making me wonder about the various stages that you could be at and whether asynchronous could actually be more appropriate and more suitable for a different stage of the, like I'm thinking about that what we would refer to in our model as stage five, when you've designed hopefully the intervention with a lot of participation and engagement from other people, but it's being implemented hopefully within the classroom or at home or in the community or wherever, that actually that connection with the consultant at that stage is a very difficult one actually for us all in 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 our context to be able to maintain and how helpful an asynchronous interaction may be because the pressure that one is experiencing in the moment of delivering something you know whereas actually if you have got that space where there's maybe a little video from the ep that's there that's sort of checking in with you and then you're able to sort of respond at a time that suits you look i did try those things I'm not massively sure about this bit. What do you make of this? And that, again, the EP is also then able to kind of pick that up when they're in a position to be able to respond. It it is huge, exciting potential as a strategy to try and improve that particular stage of of the problem solving process, really.
2: I think so, too. And and I'm excited to do more research in that area. And I hope others do as well, because I think if we can figure this out, uh, we know consultation to be this tool to really reach more people, but now if we're talking about doing things asynchronously, I don't know what that translates to as like how much more, but I I feel as though we could reach many more people through that Mm -hmm. format.
3: Yeah, if you've got multiple people in the system who are concerned about a child or young person, including the child or young person themselves, Actually, this has, I'm thinking about times when it maybe it's very hard to say in front of other people in a meeting. oh, I'm thinking this and that, but maybe that this is, it, it creates a space for that. But I'm also thinking about the pressure one can experience in the moment and being asked like, how is it going? And you're kind of, I can't even get my head together about what I would like to be able to say or think about. And the appreciation I think some students have had, is not about, you know, consultees necessarily, but students who said actually, asynchronous learning provides me the opportunity to take in and digest what I'm actually even thinking and feeling at that. And then later on, I'm able to maybe make a post or make a video or do whatever I want to do. But I don't experience that in the moment of actually, I need more reflection time, I need more space to be able just to process it at all. And what you're saying, I hadn't thought about actually its application, the consultation, but absolutely there, there could be huge value in, in that space for processing, um, rather than being expected to be delivering right there. And then in the moment of, of, of having the consultation with, with the psychologist.
2: Right. And, and I mean, I think conviction is great, but you know, I also think there's real value in being able to be thoughtful and take your time. And I think there's a lot of pressure in these moments uh, for educators to, to be right or p- be perceived in this way. Um, and I think as a consultant, there's probably some pressure to to give the answer quickly to, to satisfy the the educator you're working with or the parent. And so I think building building this in and maybe normalizing, like it's okay to pause and think and edit your thoughts. Like that's a good thing. Um, and I found that with just my teaching as an instructor uh, at the university level, I really appreciate appreciate having the chat feature in my classes because there's many students who maybe wouldn't feel comfortable to communicate, who can be thoughtful and put their responses in that way. And I think asynchronous allows us to do that. We can record ourselves and say, I oh, was a little, maybe I was a little bit too harsh in that response. I'm going to try that again. And I think that ability to self-assess is, is really important. Um, I wanted to jump in too and, and bring up another um, piece that you had mentioned around kind of the semantics of how we talk about. Um, this work in general, whether it be face to face or in person. And this is maybe a soapbox that I've gotten on uh, recently. But I think that, like you said, the terminology is so important. Um, A lot of times people will conflate um, in person with face to face. And I think what's important is that we are achieving the the face to face elements that are really important through this format. Um, I can pick up on your facial cues and, and and all those things. Um, maybe I need to be more intentional in the interaction than if I was in person, but I think we can pick up on those things. And so for me, um, I agree. I think that the key element is is being face-to-face, whether that's in person or, or through a virtual environment. And so I'm glad you mentioned that um, when we were kind of talking through some of this before.
3: Because Language shapes how we, how we think really, doesn't it? And I think if we are emphasizing this idea of, it's even the phrasing of social distancing versus physical distancing, I think that does have it has a connotation, and what gets taken, and even if it's quite implicit about what might be meant by that, and it it is worthwhile us paying attention to us. I guess one of the things that we we had been thinking about, and Jess and I before we met with you, Aaron, was about um, you know issues of inequity um, in in the UK and um, in education and in a, in a range of different areas, um, and we've had a, a you know data that, that comes out almost daily or weekly that highlights the massive disparities that either COVID is highlighting in a different kind of way or they were already there um, and they're just getting worse actually in some respects. And teleconsultation for us does obviously raise some questions around equity um, some of my clinical work is in North London. It's a very um, big Orthodox Jewish community for for religious reasons. There's sometimes families who just don't have even computers at home. It's just that's not something that they, they would use. Um, there are issues for people in terms of paying for, you know, there may be a computer or a laptop at home or a tablet, but it's maybe having to be shared between multiple people because you've got numerous children at home. Wi-Fi data, it all costs money. Have people got spaces that they can be in where they, they can have some privacy? And also about what, you know, you mentioned about the kind of when you're on the um, on the robots and the kids are coming to and your your virtual physical space being in as a territory space, isn't there about where can you go in your own home and people aren't looking at the back of your behind you and all those kinds of things. Um, and the digital divide, I guess, that that can be created or exacerbated by the situation that we're in. But it, it's just highlighting perhaps something that was already already there. Um, yeah, we we're really keen to ask you about that issue of the digital divide in the first instance and your thoughts on on consultation and promoting equalities, really.
2: Yeah, I think it's such an important point. And it's something that I've thought a lot about as we've done this work. Um, and I think, like you mentioned, there's there's the aspects of, of accessing the technology, high-speed high broadband internet, the actual technology, the hardware, the software, all of those things. But then there's the, the inequities of what the physical space, the environment you're in looks like. You may have multiple people in the home. You may have multiple people trying to access education in the home, bandwidth now re- reduces. Um, you may have uh, some type of limited bandwidth, um, and so all these things add up, and, they, and I think they they interact with each other, and I think it becomes really challenging, um, and something that we've been really really considered about. Um, I, I think the schools, school districts here locally um, and across the United States, have really tried during the pandemic to to make technology access, uh, at least getting the hardware, software, and internet, a priority. But that's not enough, right? Just because you give all the devices and do all that, um, there's still um, accessibility of people to help facilitate learning um, and, and to help to make those things happen. And I think we haven't really figured those things out. Um, I, I definitely know that there's districts, all of our districts have students who who are still not logging on, who, who may have chose to be remote and are really having issues. And that's where I think to really address this in an equitable way, we have to remember, there are gonna be certain families and certain students who will require more of our support and more of our resources. And we have to keep that in mind. Um, and so, for example, we, we've we worked with a, a virtual charter school, a public charter school here in Utah to help support families who are facilitating online education. So the students are at home and their parents are sort of the, the teachers, um, or they at least help facilitate that. And as part of this, we looked at the school data and said, these are the students who, who had risk for um, falling behind, um, for failing their courses. And we wanted to figure out why. And so we would do asynchronous observations in their home, um, in their learning space. And we were able to start to see patterns. Oh, hey, you're, you're on your bed trying to do your education. Well, I know for me, if I'm doing my work on, on my bed, I, I may be less um, engaged as I could be if I'm sitting at my desk and then that begs the question is do they have desks do we need it? does the school need to help provide a desk? and so it, but until we can see what's going on and of course you know parents are, are inviting us in to help support in this capacity, um, we can't provide those equitable services. And so I, I still think it what we found is it goes back to building relationships with families and getting them to trust us and, and allow us to come in and start to work with them to address these inequities rather than to try to keep you know throwing things to try to solve the problem. Um, And I think when we have that engagement, and we can provide more of that support I have seen that these inequities um, be be kind of more uh, evened out and we start to see more, um, more success and more uh, equal performance as we'd expect to maybe for students who have more access or have more privilege when it comes to parent support, um, educational support things like that.
3: That's really helpful. I, one thing you mentioned earlier was this issue about, you know, intentionality and presence and that really being something that you've got to <laughs> work, work at when you are working in this way. Um, yeah, I guess that for me feels like one of the sort of more distinctive or, or unique components. Yes, yeah, so you are doing stuff that you might do if you were um, in person in the same physical space, but you're probably working harder at it and being far more intentional are there other things that you would say yeah this is what's making everybody knows that obviously the tech side of things maybe is a new knowledge or a new skill that you need to acquire and become more comfortable with but would there be other things that you would be recommending and saying actually these are the kinds of things that make teleconsultation unique and distinctive or do you see it just more of a variation on a spectrum of what one would ordinarily be be suggesting
2: that one would do in a consultation. Yeah, that's a a really good question. I see it as more of like a variation, like here's another alternative way that we could do these things. Um, And I think that obviously the technology piece is so different. Um, it's but it's also the the interacting that's so sort of different um like i mentioned you can't pop by but but if i when i was in person and, and when we'll hopefully go back soon to, to be in person for next academic year i'm notorious for bringing donuts in for the teachers i work with or um bringing something to help you know lighten their day or help them feel supported or even saying hey can i do a quick social emotional lesson for some of your students can you need to take a break and just you know go to the bathroom grab, grab something to drink those are really meaningful moments that i think I'm limited in doing remotely. And so it's really thinking of, of creative ways. So maybe, you know, what we've done this year is more handwritten notes, just taking some time to say, I just really appreciate the time that you're taking. Thank you for meeting with me. Thanks for, for being such an amazing educator or for trying your best as a parent. Um, and so again, it's just, it's it's like these iterations uh, I think is what I see as different. It's still the same core. We're still doing the same stuff but it's how are we packaging these things and how are we disseminating it that, that is still salient for people um, because of, like you said, the, the need for intentionality.
0: I guess as well, it's made me think a bit about how we practice in terms of what models we use and how applicable they are to using in an in a, in a online way, I guess. Um, at the Tavistock, we kind of draw on the relational model of consultation, which Emma developed alongside um, a colleague as well. And I think that with that model, we're drawing on psychodynamic theory and we're thinking about you know things like projection or counter transference and what's going on there and um, in terms of the, the relating and, and within the relationship and it's something I guess in my own practice that I found as we've moved to this sort of online um, delivery that I found much more difficult to kind of gauge um, mm-hmm. and obviously you don't have cues like body language and you're relying on um, a smaller set of cues I guess from a parent or for a consultee um, whether that's a teacher or whoever you're kind of yeah, doing consultation with so do you think that you know in terms of the different models of consultation because I know people listening will probably be drawing on different models do you think there are any that kind of fit more like easily or yeah just your opinion really on on what you think about how we kind of theory to practice how that looks when you're moving to an online way of delivering consultation?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm biased because I've my, our work has fallen really with that problem solving consultation. So looking at um, Bergen and Cradwell's work and, and Sue Sheridan, um, and then moving that into maybe more conjoint behavioral consultation with um, Andy Garbach's work, um, and again, Sue Sheridan. And so I, the reason that I've, I went to that as a teleconsultation researcher and practitioner was that it's so prescriptive. And from a training standpoint, it it was very easy to replicate. And I appreciated that because as we know, if we're really trying to implement this stuff, um, it has to be discreet. And so I think um, that's been very helpful. Um, I don't, I don't think that there would be like a limitation for, for other models, other theoretical, uh, you know, ways of, of conducting consultation, but it's, it's, diving in and seeing, oh, wow, this, this is really different. This is the, this is the purposeful thing we'll have to do through, through this model and thinking about these things. And, you know, I think the, the reality is we have less opportunities to pick up on things. So for example, with one of our projects this year, we have uh, an educator who was experiencing some um, personal issues um, in their lives. And we didn't have as many opportunities to, to connect about some of those things. And that definitely influenced some of us an interaction that we had. And there was, it was like uh, times a little bit contentious. And so we we had to be maybe more reactive where maybe in some ways you could be more, Proactive because you're there and you can kind of have some of those things. So I think there's still there's still pieces that I think could be enhanced through even like the more prescriptive problem solving consultation uh, that maybe are more flexible through through other models or or you have more opportunity because of the intentionality around the relationship.
3: I mean, Jess has mentioned obviously that the Tavistock is very much associated in in England and actually internationally really with with psychoanalytic thinking, also with the attachment theory. It was where John Bilby sort of was based for a long time and actually you know, uh, was the head of the first um, children and families department actually in the clinic. Um, but also there's a really rich systemic tradition at the trust as well. And one thing that students consistently notice no matter which of those theories that we're kind of privileging quite heavily, there's an ongoing theme or emphasis about relationships and relating, regardless of which one of those three that you're picking out. Um, And I guess we're really interested in your, early experiences, perhaps prior to the sort of move into sort of seeing the benefits of teleconsultation as well, so the both and, um, of consultation relationships and how did that go in those initial stages? I know you mentioned really interestingly that sometimes you might arrive and teachers felt either not ready or not available to meet with you. Yeah, just your early experiences of consultation relationships and how have those experiences of relating? Um, in consultation influenced your your work now?
2: Yeah, that, that's a really great question. You know, with some of the early work, and, and I think I mentioned this earlier on, my, my initial training, my initial background was really around behavior analysis. And I think if you look at behavior analysis traditionally, it's not very focused or they don't speak very, um clearly about the importance of the relationship they talk about like you know pairing yourself as a reinforcer um and i think that 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 was something for me that became increasingly more um uh, relevant, and I think that I'm so grateful for my psychological training because those worlds m- m- like mesh together, and I could really pull from more of the traditional, um, you know, cognitive behavioral and, and more kind of psychological studies about this importance of the relationship because th- that piece really sets the stage for so many of these things. And I think for me earlier earlier on, once I could really uh, give credit and, and give the space to build that relationship, it, it was like very uh, liberating for me as a researcher because. Because I think maybe prior to that, I I was very focused on the delivery of the services and let's do all these things, very procedural. Um, And then once I could see as a trainee in practice, you can do all the best procedures, but if people don't like you, and if people don't have a relationship and they don't trust you, then you're not going to get anything done. And, and I think that is the really important piece. And that's where, you know, even if you look at like interpersonal process theories for for therapy, uh, it, 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 really, it really resonates with me because it's talking about, let's have that relationship and then let's just plug in, you know, the little apps that can go onto that. That's sort of how I perceive it as the technology researcher. But I think that's really Important, and I hope, uh, and this is some of the work that I've done, is try to infuse that back into behavior analysis, saying we can do all these great strategies, we can help change behavior, as long as you're focusing on the relationship. And and I'm I'm excited because at least for the. Uh, uh, behavior analysis certification board, they've they've moved to add in a consultation and supervision course in the training. And so it was such a relief for me because for years I was thinking uh, for the folks who I who I taught who are doing the BCBA sequence, like we have talked about these things. We have talked about these things. We have a bad reputation where we are the people who just come in devoid of an idea of the relationships just trying to make people do things and it, it's oppressive and, and it's, it's there's no other way to perceive it and so I've I've really appreciated the blending of my training um, and we we published a, a manuscript I think in 2016 that talked about the benefit of school psychology training that infuses behavior analysis where you can really retain um, some of the broader um, psychological constructs and, and practices that are really helpful.
3: I think that was one of the things that we were really just sort of loving in in um, Professor Urchel's work was this idea of bringing together aspects of mental health consultation that we would see as very, you know, focused on relationships, but bringing in also the kind of, you know, rigor or robustness from a more behavioral model and trying to bring those two together and really what the The benefits of having both of those ways of thinking in mind when you're kind of approaching some of the challenges that are experienced in schools, it felt really, really quite exciting and sort of linked it a little bit for me to what you've just been talking about. You also mentioned the word supervision, and um, this is a perennial area of interest for us, uh, partially because uh, alone, I think within the UK, you know, teachers do not have a system of of supervision in quite the same way that a social worker would expect to be supervised. A psychologist would be, a psychiatrist, anybody who's working in the human services would probably have this idea that supervision is a core part of, um, you know, it's a learning relationship that one engages in when training and in practice. Teachers do not have that same culture within education. And just when you were talking about when you used to go into school and that you would sort of you know, check in with people and sort of see how they were, that minding of a person who's in their role and that kind of connecting up with them and having a relationship with them that supports reflection. I'm wondering about the link you may see between good supervision in schools and good supervision for school psychologists and how that then also links to to consultation.
2: You know, I see those as as like complementary activities, and and I teach a consultation supervision class um, this semester, and uh, that's what we talk about a lot. Is is essentially it's it's a variation of the same thing, and it's really important, um, when we're supervising folks that have circumstances and try, you know to train them and support them, and in the consultative role the same way we, we should be empowering people. That should be the role um, rather than bossing people around or demeaning them or or discounting what they can contribute. And we have to see people for people first, and then do all these other things. And um, I, I think if we can get into a place to do that, it, I imagine that that will be a, a much more, and much easier way to get people on board with consultation and get them to participate more. Because th- them as the consultee, they're being seen um, just as much as a supervisee. I, they're being seen. They're being validated for their their circumstances.
3: Because that was, I think, one of the questions that we we had really for you is that you know this last year practice has probably experienced the, I don't know, the biggest change I think I'll ever see in in my lifetime, Um, and the kind of adoption of technologies in delivering both teaching services and psychological services, um, including consultation. And that sense of actually one massive change, I guess, associated with all of that is the level of stress and anxiety that's being experienced by the people that we're trying to consult to and, and be helpful to. Um, yeah, just your views on would you say the pandemic and those kinds of factors, have they changed your teleconsultation practice or how you see it or. Um, yeah, how has that that this this past year in any way kind of influenced your thinking about about the work.
2: Yeah, for, for me, I and I think I mentioned this before, I sort of put the teleconsultation work like up on a shelf and I was like, it's there. And maybe in 30 years, people will get in touch and they'll be like, wow, you did all this stuff 30 years ago, it was really cool. We're actually using it now. Um, so I think it's given me sort of this rejuvenated um, interest and desire to, to really jump back into this work in a more substantive way. Um, because I think what I'm hearing from school districts um, across the United States is is they're moving beyond the pandemic now. And they see the value of this work beyond the pandemic. And I really appreciate that. I hope that we see more of this work moving forward. I know at least here in Utah, some of our large districts are already committed to doing online um, programs for next year. So they'll have an online elementary school, online middle, online high school for families who choose that route. Um, And I think the, the impetus for that was many students left to go to these online charters. And so they wanna bring them back into their districts who are going to support those students. And those schools are going to have this whole new um, need for thousands of students who need that online support at home. So not only are we going to be consulting uh, with folks who are in school buildings virtually, but I think we're going to be consulting with families more so now. And and really, this might give an opportunity to do more of that conjoint work where we're bringing families in in more purposeful ways. Um, So I'm excited because I think now that we have that buy-in, now that I, I think everyone has experienced video conferencing now um, for the most part, uh, I imagine that we'll see more, more uptake of this work. And so I'm excited and we've been um, submitting federal grants for, for these projects for probably about six years. And we're hopeful now that um, you know with each iteration that we, we can eventually get closer to, to getting one um, because I think that when we can really get some of the federal funds to support this work, that's where I think we can have the really large data sets Start to show the effectiveness, and, and then get this in the hands of more people, um, particularly because we'll have a really strong evidence base at that point.
3: Yeah, I'm just even thinking of people saying now that it like engagement is different. It's you know um, a particular oh. emphasis. I know Emily's talked about this a few times about access to fathers for just as an example seems to have been so much greater in this last year, if in her experience, than she would have had prior to now. And having had all of that sort of research knowledge that you thought was going to go up on a shelf, and now suddenly everyone's really interested in, are there key things that you, you know for people listening in who want to know well, what are the kind of key messages I can take away from research that already exists about how to do this well? What should I avoid? Are there particular things I need to kind of pay attention to? Are there kind of key messages that you would kind of summarize and say, look, if you're going to do three things or avoid three things? These are the things that you would, you would suggest to people?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. My, I think my top three, um, suggestions are, um, be, be compassionate with the people you're working with and be compassionate with yourself because there's just so much learning with technology. Everything goes wrong all the time. I mean, that's just the name of the game. That's just how it goes. And I think we need to be prepared ourselves, but also prepare the people we're working with that. This is still an imperfect, Uh, technology technology is imperfect, right? Humans made these things, it's just inherent. And so uh, until we get to a point where everything is seamless, uh, which maybe will be down the road when we have incredibly high-speed internet speeds and everyone has access, until then, be compassionate, help people. Um, everyone's still learning. And I think that's that's going to be a really nice place to also incidentally build some rapport with people. Um, the other piece to it that I think is a, is a good takeaway is, and we talked about this, is the intentionality. So plan everything out, have everything written out, have everything replicable um, so that it's easy to access, it's easy to disseminate. And then the last piece that that we found to be kind of the biggest barrier to doing teleconsultation is the modeling of work. So it's easy to watch people do stuff, get performance feedback, but it's hard for me on my little square to say, okay, this is how you're going to do this intervention, or this is how you're going to do these things. And so we've moved to more um, like video-based models where we use... um, uh commercially available um um, animation software to create little one minute video clips that will teach certain skills and that's been really helpful because it allows us to say oh hey here's this this thing that we want you to do we're going to send you a youtube uh link to it check it out and let us know if you have questions and then that allows us we don't have to have people to record, you know, real people. We just have to record our voices as the voiceover. And, and we can start doing some of the modeling that we found to be a real challenge before. So I think those three things would at least get you on an even playing field with what you might do in person as a consultant um, and, and probably yield some of the best results.
3: You're making me think, actually, one of the things that the the students and, and in practice that has often come up has been particularly challenging is proper engagement in the sort of bit that we would I don't know what way you would call it there, but the formulation bit. So when you have kind of work together with the system to try and work out, well, what is the sort of problem that we're all trying to solve here? And you've done a little bit of analysis. When you've gotten to a point where you've got some ideas that you want to be able to share, you're making me think about the potential for tech in being able just to sort of say, look, these are my thoughts. And I think it's very, very difficult to, in the moment, respond to somebody's thoughts and go, oh yeah, I or particularly, I really disagree with what you've just said. And the idea that maybe I'm thinking about my clinical work really is in autism and particularly in relation to autism diagnosis, that it is very, very challenging in the moment of maybe sort of sharing the outcome of an assessment for anyone to be able to comment on, on what they're hearing. If there was some way of doing an asynchronous kind of post of you know here's a summary of what we've discussed or here's what this might mean or what do you make of these bits of what we've done and that people can take it away think about it process it and then make their own posting and particularly for the age range that I would be working with which would be older adolescents and adults actually for them to be engaged more in the process um, it has such potential of getting away from this kind of well I'll just go and do an assessment and I'll write a report and then I'll send it and I'll just you know this kind of conveyor belt mentality that sometimes all of us can get a bit trapped into is how do I build that collaborative engaging way of working with everyone that I want to kind of be helpful to
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that example you gave is great because typically at the end of an assessment, we would, you know, do the feedback and and send people on their way. And that's when all the questions come in mind, right? And so if we have this document that also has for every recommendation, here's a link that that shows you these things or here's a community resource for those things Um, that's what parents are doing they're coming they're reading the report again um, or if it's an adult uh, client or trying to digest that then they're going to go look for the things and if it's just words on paper it's just i'm going to put that away and i'm feeling overwhelmed but if it's here's this link and it's teaching me something or it's it's validating me in that moment yeah, I think there's a really cool place we can go with that. And um, I have a, um, a previous graduate student who, who's working now um, and, and really th- thinking about some of this as it comes to autism assessment is could we create reports that sort of auto-generate some of these recommendations, the, the links with these recommendations. So I think it's a really cool idea. And, and hopefully we get more buy-in, like you said.
3: Yeah. No, I have one student this year because of the whole, you know, space that we find ourselves in in the post-diagnostic work she was doing with the with an 18 year old young woman um in each of the sessions they had together she sort of said look do you want to watch a video together about this thing do you want to listen to a podcast do you want to read something and she gave choices about what way the young person could engage it was like a psychoeducation sessions what what way they wanted to engage with the material sometimes they chose to watch a video together but actually it's it's saving on reading a whole heap of text that people might find quite impenetrable, not really applicable to them. They were able to watch these like quite short clips, actually, but particularly thinking about women and autism and maybe some of the sort of unique kind of components of that. And then link actually I don't agree with that bit or I wasn't sure about this. What did you think of that? it It changed the nature of the interaction and the the sort of degree of control, I guess the young person had over. sessions that they were having um and really trying to kind of keep in mind actually technology is there to foster equalities it's it's not necessarily always going to be a barrier to i mean you've mentioned about rural areas and about the kind of scale of i mean the us obviously is completely different To i'm from ireland where it takes like three hours to get across the country so we're not really that worried about it's very different um but yeah that it has potential particularly use of video to be so much more accessible than some of the really dense jargon heavy written reports that that people have by default maybe gotten themselves quite caught up
2: in absolutely yeah i just i see so much value with being able to put things online and like you said giving people choices about how they want to consume this information there's not one way to teach these things and we see that with you know all the different variations of psychological treatment that we could do and i think it's just figuring out uh the presentation that that maybe of interest to folks and then letting them choose. And we know choice itself functions as a reinforcer. People like that. It feels good to be able to say, I'm gonna to go to the ice cream shop and there's, you know, 50 flavors I can pick from. Um, I, think, I think those things have a lot of value and, and we should really consider that um, in the work we do.
0: I guess um, I was thinking a little bit about, I think you mentioned right at the beginning, you know, that you've always been kind of interested in not teleconsultation per se, but, you know, like using technology. Um, in in psychology and I was thinking a little bit about you know how in my service particularly there might have been you know some resistance to using technology people that are more or less familiar educational psychologists that are more or less familiar Um, particularly when you think about age and generations and how how um, exposed we've been to different sorts of technology I guess and I just wondered you know do you have any advice for educational psychologists that might find it particularly difficult to because I know sometimes for me I'm like I don't know what I'm doing using this piece of technology like even zoom took me a while and I'm not someone that I would say is like a technophobe particularly but sometimes the things that you're mentioning I'm like wow like that sounds amazing like but would I be able to do that would I be able to access that sort of um technology and, and yeah if I'm thinking that I'm sure there are possibly other educational psychologists or trainees that would feel that way as well. So I don't know if there's any kind of things that you read or things that you're kind of, yeah, checking in on to kind of develop your technological skills in terms of consultation or psychological service delivery anyway.
2: Yeah. you know, And I think it's okay to to have that apprehension towards technology. I I don't think there's a graduate student that joins our program and joins my lab that doesn't start by saying I'm like okay with technology but this is still really scary. And I think that's a healthy place to be. Uh, There's like some protective anxiety around some of that where maybe it drives us to learn a little bit more Um, but I'm still learning with technology. And and for me, like you said, it's just about educating myself. Um, I'm really interested in video games. I always have been. Um, And so I still play video games. I have collaborators and we do projects Um, here on campus with the engineering, arts and entertainment, which is our our games program. They do uh, virtual games as well as other um, more serious games. And so it's been been really nice to see those applications and to continue to learn. And um, just to be open and and to give yourself grace with like, I don't know that, but I'm going to go on Google and I'm going to search for all these things that I don't know about. Um, Sometimes I'll try to check out um the technology conferences so the american psychological association has the technology mind and society conference which i think is maybe in its second or third year um, and i think it's virtual coming up this fall i, I would highly recommend it it's it's all technology infused services everything from um consultative work to direct service work and it's just been inspiring i mean to go and see people who one of my favorite ones we had our one of our feeding um, teleconsultation um, studies hi- uh, highlighted in a panel or in a workshop and some of the other folks who were there with us were doing this really cool simulation work where they were bringing families in and having them go through this virtual buffet. And they were like, pick pick whatever food you would feed for your kid. And it was around reducing obesity. And, and it was just super cool to learn about these applications. And then from that, I'm seeing this is how image imaging software works. This is how they have all these camera arrays set up where they can make food look like real food in a virtual space. And these things are always blowing my mind. I just, I like geek out on it. And so for me, I just think it's finding that passion to learn and not be discouraged about the the, the frustration that might, might come with it or um, some of the sort of um, difficulty that you might have. Uh, that, I think that's hard, but like I had mentioned earlier, I think with more and more exposure, you, you know, you may not see the end of the tunnel, but you know, there's a path to get there. It's just kind of, figuring it out and, and being okay like feeling around a little bit and maybe shining your flashlight in different ways to, to find out where that is
3: and the generation that are coming up are just in a different space they're just like yeah I you know I think everybody's had the experience maybe of their children teaching them how to do stuff that you'd be thinking gosh the roles are really reversed now and having any number of different apps explained to you in a really patronizing fashion as how come you don't get TikTok? I, you know, I don't understand why you don't know how to use this. And this is how it works. So I think if we don't kind of try to keep up more with the technology and its potential, I think we're in danger of kind of running ourselves out of something in terms of how it potentially is being used by children and young people, and will be increasingly used in that way as we go forward. Um you just mentioned something to you about anything that you would like read or keep up with. And that conference sounds amazing. But we have been trying to ask people who've come on um, about one thing that you read or encountered when you were maybe training or very early on that really just was like, this is the thing. I, I'm just loving this. Um, I don't know, book chapter or article or maybe a a movie or a film or a different podcast, even is there something that you feel? Yeah. If there was one thing I was going to recommend that people should engage with, it's this thing.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. The first thing that comes to mind is like my inspiration for the telepresence robots. I'll, I'll give you all a more professional um, reference or for, for something, but um, I watched the Big Bang Theory a lot and and that always really inspired me. And then there was this one episode where Sheldon says, I don't have to go into my office. I'll just build a telepresence robot. And it was so inspiring for me. That's when the light bulb went on as we were trying to figure out these things. And that's when I started to, to search for telepresence robots. So you know, serendipitously, it's from sitcoms. But uh, as far as like, my professional or my academic influences, um, there's the uh, Urchel and Sheridan uh, Handbook in Research and School Consultation. And um, they have a 2014 version, I think it's the second edition, but when I was in graduate school, it was still the first edition. And I remember reading that one cover to cover and just being so inspired by what work had been done, but seeing this glaring hole in technology and, and as I talked to my mentors, uh, Frank Fresham and Bill Urchel and other folks, it was very clear that this, this was a space that, that not many people had, had thought about. And, and seeing that glaring hole in context with all this fantastic work that had been done up to that point, it, it just seemed like a logical extension. And so for folks who haven't read that text, uh, the 2014 um, second edition is, is really great. And I think they do a really nice job of serving really all the facets um, of, of relevant consultation.
3: Given how much you yourself have written, uh, would you mind us asking if there was one thing of yours that you would really encourage people to read? Or does that feel a bit cringy to ask you? I'm not sure. But yeah, you know, if there was something you're going to go, yeah, this is the thing that really kind of encapsulates some of my core messages that I want people to kind of know about. Is there is there something that you would pick out?
2: Yeah, and I appreciate that question, I think that um, you know we've been really proud of the work we've been able to do with collaboration with so many great students and colleagues. And I think for me what really culminates up to this point the work we've done is our our edited text that we came out with in 2019 um, which was on. um, uh, technology supports for supervision consultation and training. And I really appreciate that one. Um, and I th- and I think the first chapter is still free through Routledge. So if folks are interested who are listening, I know that the first chapter is on teleconsultation. So it's a really uh, appropriate one. Um, I-, I think that that text does a nice survey of all the, the areas and a lot of what we've talked about today, um, but gives some really tangible steps for people to do. So when we're thinking about things like supervision, we talk about what are the technical pieces you need to think about And then what are the more applied pieces you need to think about when you're thinking about coaching uh, through a teleconsultative framework? So really, you know, helping people do the work. We break it down from chapters like bug in your coaching. So really diving deep into some of these more um, nuanced ways of doing it. So if there was one text uh, to pick, it's that one. And um, my co-editors, Ty Collins, um, Evan Dart and Keith Radley, we had a really fun time editing that book. And we we had some amazing contributors. So I I would encourage your listeners and you all if you're interested to, to check that one out.
0: Thank you, Aaron. It's been so good to speak to you today. Um, I think that it will be very refreshing and inspiring for all of our listeners. I know for me, just listening to you, I could listen forever. And I'm sure there's loads more that we could talk about that we haven't covered today. Um, So it's been, yeah, just thank you so so much. I'm sure Emily and Emma also really appreciate having you here. And yeah, hopefully our listeners will find this yeah, a time to think differently, maybe about consultation generally, and also in relation to teleconsultation, especially now things have kind of changed. And yeah, thinking forward, how we can embrace some of this technology. Thank you so much.
2: Absolutely. It's it's my pleasure. And thanks for having me on to talk about this. Anytime you all want to chat about this, I'm I'm always happy to, um, and hopefully get a chance to maybe connect in person, whether that be in in Utah or in the UK. Um, Mm -hmm. I've really enjoyed talking with you all about this today.